here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Hi, I'm Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. So today we're going to discuss a topic that is central to our success in winning Medicare for All. Um, when we as a movement talk about what it's going to take to win, often what do you hear? Issues like fundraising, public education, electing the right legislators. Those are the things that usually come up. But I think there's something that may be even more important than any of those things in putting us on the path to victory. And that is, of course, confronting the deeply ingrained racism in our structures and selves. When you look at where the United States is in, compared, in comparison to its peer countries, it's impossible to explain why we are so much more of an unequal and capitalist society than everywhere else without looking at the role of racism through our history, um, its impact on our safety net, and the neglect and vilification of our public programs. So this is like a big conversation, and we could probably have several podcasts on it, but today we want to talk about racism specifically in the healthcare system and how Medicare for All would and wouldn't address you know, racism at the doctor's office, and and then a little bit about the interrelated nature of our movements, uh, movement with the larger fight for racial justice, um, and why and how they are interconnected. So, Ben, do you want to introduce our guest? Absolutely. So, it is my great pleasure to introduce um, the wonderful person on the screen with us, um, <laughs> Dr. Bita Amani, who is an associate pre professor for the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. And uh, this is uh, timely, is a lead co-chair of the COVID-19 Task Force on Racism and Equity, which is housed at the UCLA Center for a Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health. Welcome, Dr. Amani. Thank you, I'm so excited to be here. It is great to have you. So before we dive into this uh, deep topic, um, can you tell us a little bit about like your background and why did you choose to become an epi epidemiologist with a focus on racism and what is epidemiology? <laughs> so, I mean, that's a, that's a wonderful question. It, um, just what is an epidemiologist? Because I think um, for so many people um, in my friend circle and my family, um, you know, this current moment had them um, hearing the word and being like, uh, isn't Vita one of those? Um, so <laughs> epidemiology is essentially like, you know, the, the science and the studying of the disease distribution and pattern, the, the distribution and patterns of disease um, and anything associated with disease. Um, and it's not only about studying the, you know, the distribution and the pattern um, of disease and its, and its related outcomes, but it's also about studying the things that go into effect, right? The things that are in place, the policies and practices that we have, what are the effects of those things on um, the distribution of disease, disease-related outcomes. So what that meant for me, um, I think, you know, growing up was that I always loved um, health and I loved politics. 
Um, and I was always, you know, thinking about the relationship between these two things. Um, and so when, you know, you're thinking about how to have some sort of impact, especially as like a young person, um, and you hear about like institutions like the CDC or the WHO, right? Um, you really can, you know, start to get a sense of like, what does it mean to be able to like go out and to study and to collect information that can be so useful um, that it can actually save lives like on a, a larger level. So these are, you know, you know, to me, like, you know, when I think about like that young person, you know, um, who was really drawn to like the field and studying it, like epidemiology means that. But then over time, epidemiology then also came to mean um, a tool set and a set of ideas that belong to and were in service of a system that um, not only was structured by racism, right? Like, you know, as Stephanie mentioned at the beginning, like this is like at the heart of what we're talking about here today, um, but also was instrumental in structuring it and, and creating and maintaining that. Um, and so that what that meant for me as somebody who was studying it um, was that I was really drawn initially to um, infectious disease epidemiology um, because you saw so much like inequity um, and also just like kind of racialized like ideas about populations being generated around like who's sick, who's not, what's the risk to people who are not sick from those who are, you know, so all those racial conversations. Um, and then, you know, moving into what we call behavioral epi um, and the idea that um, people's behaviors and their pat like and um, and you know people's behaviors and their own actions can somehow be connected and related to their health. So there's a potential here for some sort of empowerment, right? To what I am, I think you know today, like loosely um, and specifically, a, um, you know, a social epidemiologist, somebody who wants to study the distribution of disease and disease-related factors um, in populations and communities um, based on understanding systems, structures, and power, and that gets us to structural racism. That sounds important today. <laughs> so you've been preparing your whole life for this very moment, basically, and trying to trying to prepare us for this moment, which we horribly mishandled, I'd say. I mean, I think for my whole life, I've been preparing for this moment of extended sleep and rest, <laughs> right? Um, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, there has been there within public health, there is a strong group of people who've been studying racism and equity for a very long time. And even if we don't think about people like, you know, as like formal titles within public health, like for the centuries of this country's existence, people who have organized towards like larger goals of like racial freedom, right? Um, and a dismantling of all like inequities have been doing public health work. Right. Um, and so I think right now in this current moment, we're seeing that like people who've been thinking about the health, the body, the systems, the structures, like white supremacy, how it's structuring advantage and disadvantage for populations to the detriment of like, you know, them either getting diseases or like not living as longer as other people. Um, we've been doing, you know, if you've been doing work on racism, we're now at a place that we argue then we've all been doing public health work. Um, and so then within our field now, right, and so sometimes you think that like people outside of us get us more than we get ourselves. So within our own world right now, and I'm, you know, I'm just going to, you know, use this like loosely as like our health world of healthcare workers and, um, you know, and those that are, you know, direct, you know, 
would identify more with public health versus healthcare, right? We're, we are coming together and understanding that if we are not holding at the center structural racism, then we're really missing the boat on addressing so many of like the disparities that we're seeing. Yeah, so you have so much knowledge about exactly the intersection between health and racism. But for our listeners, let's start with, you know, the real basics. Um, and you're talking about structural racism here. So obviously, I mean, can you, uh, can you explain how that differs um, from talking about, you know, bigots who have racist ideals saying and doing racist things to other people? Is that, you know, explain a little bit more about how maybe that, that understanding of racism is too narrow. One of the things that um, um, becomes really important in trying to uh, understand um, racism is to spend some time not thinking about, like you're saying, like the bigots, not thinking about like, you know, um, who said what to who, what do people think about like different, um, different phenotypes, right? But to sit with the idea of like, what is, how is racism only something that's structuring? And therefore, because it is something that's so structuring, how it shows up even on the molecular level, right? Um, and that it determines all relationships in society. And because it determines all relationships in society and health is something that's produced relationally, right? I mean, here we are, we're talking about Medicare for all. Like this is ultimately in order for us to make an argument to people that they need some, that they should advocate for something that they really need, right? We're having to do this in the space of how we relate to each other. We're having to talk about things on a human to human interaction for people to understand then the importance of like, okay, well, what does this mean like for that? So racism, specifically structural racism and specifically white supremacy, right? Like all these things are as structuring proje uh, projects. They determine the systems in which we live. They determine then the advantages and disadvantages, right? And then they determine how those advantages and disadvantages are structured across different groups of people. So if we can appreciate that like larger meta, like like feeling and feel the weight of that, of like that is what racism is, then we can start to look uh, to, to position and locate then what we're calling implicit bias or not implicit bias, what we're calling interpersonal racism, what we're calling institutional racism, and seeing that all of them are produced out of these structures. Um, but more importantly, whether you're going to call it racism or not, it's to never forget that it's not operating. It's always operating. It's always present. So that every interaction and every thought has been shaped by this idea of race, right? An invention that was made by racism and specifically like white supremacy. Can you name a specific example of race, uh, structural racism? So if we think about, for example, like what more people are growingly um, appreciating today, which is like a system of racial mass incarceration that's in this country. Right. Um, and its relationship and connections to policing. Right. Um, when we think about these two um, systems, we know that these two systems are related to each other. And historically, the, they have been um, there. There have always been shapes and forms of them in society and specifically in U.S. society and specifically in the settler colonial society, which was formed through the you know, indigenous 
genocide and the kidnapping and forced displacement, right, of generations of people of African descent, right? So that so right now the system that we, we that we're focusing on, that we have growing awareness about mass incarceration and policing, this system being a historical system, if you keep going back into its roots, if you can imagine that it itself has a genetics, right? And you want to keep going like into its like ancestry, you see that that ancestry come at its core are these ideas of anti-black racism, are these ideas of anti-indigeneity, right? Around structuring who is, um, who is to have freedom in this country, who is not to have freedom, right? In fact, who is to be property and who is not to be property. You can see that the current system that we have today is rooted in this, um, in these racial ideas. Um, and then you can appreciate that after all of these like centuries, how much of all other parts of society have also been structured by this structuring system. Is that, am I answering your question? Yeah, thank you. So you had mentioned kind of in passing that um, that health uh, and healthcare actually played a role in kind of uh, creating race, race, and that racism was the thing that created race. Can you say a little bit more about that? We're kind of going back into the history here uh, before we bring ourselves up to present day. But I mean, what role has health, the healthcare system in the United States played in creating race as kind of a social construct? So if, if racism, right, um, invented race, and here I really love like, you know, um, the, the, like the definition of racism that, that Dr. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore provides, right? Um, um, and, and then um, and at the same time, um, Dorothy Roberts, um, who in her book, Fatal Inventions, right, talks about this exact question that you're, that you're asking me um, and shows us very clearly how European expansion Right. And the settling of like what we're calling the United States right now. Right. Like the indigenous lands. Right. Which is occupied. Right. Um, by the United States that in this place, in the idea of race, getting people to accept it, getting people to um, create hierarchies around it, to participate in systems and structures that perpetuate it. it that would not have been achieved and possible without science and medicine. In fact, science and medicine are part of the um, are part of the systems and the power structures that created the evidence. And I'm like putting all the quotes around that for those who can only hear me, right? Um, of creating the evidence to say that this was in this was true, and therefore this is what we should do about it. Um, what that would then mean over time is us having racialized diseases, right? Um, and an example of this, like in history, is um, for the um, audience who doesn't know, you know, drapedomania, right? The idea that uh, if, if an enslaved black person wanted to escape, right, um, to their freedom, the fact that they wanted that indicated some sort of like mental like issue. Right, that that was a, that they, that was a disease to want your freedom, right? To want to be able to like escape, right? Like the institution of slavery, um, you know. So from the creation of these like you know racialized diseases, to then also segregated health systems, which is like what's got us here today, right? Like talking mm -hmm. about Medicare for all, 
the structuring of these segregated health systems that said, we're going to give enough care to keep you alive so that you can do what we want you to do, right? With you not having the ability to determine what the nature of that work is or how you want your own life like to be, right? Like that keeping people alive enough, right? That is something that was achieved through our healthcare system. Right, and is a legacy of our healthcare system, and arguably exactly what we're talking about today. Right, and if like if we don't get a Medicare for all, then what are we doing? We're people, we're keeping people alive enough, right? Um, and so then, you know, these, uh, you know, these are the ways that then, um, I, you know, that health and you know science and medicine have helped to you know keep this alive. So how has that legacy um, carried through to the present day? And specifically, what does structural racism in the health insurance and the healthcare system look like now? I think, you know, I mean, I, you guys would be so much more better to answer this question because you know, like the details, you know, of it um, way more. But the, the legacy of it today can be thought of both in terms of like the concept of medical deserts, right? So that we have segregated space. And because we have segregated space that is connected to um, housing systems in this country and practices such as like redlining, right? The active decision to exclude people from like, you know, um, you know people of color, specifically, you know, black persons from some neighborhoods. And then also to create like, so other neighborhoods that um, you know were predominantly white folks. So to create, you know, and 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 this structuring being done because there was so much of an investment in maintaining land value, right? So getting the connection between race um, and property, right, and capital. Um, that the current, like, um, you know, get, you know, it is connected. Get, getting back to what we're talking about here about the structural racism that shows up in healthcare systems today, our, sec our um, efforts to, to segregate space have also then meant that we don't value certain space because we don't value the people that live there. So we don't put the much needed health care resources in those areas. So th those areas are not going to have hospitals. Those areas are not going to have clinics. And then we have like the second layer of, okay, well, what they do have then access to, how the healthcare system itself is so segregated. So there, there's different types of care that people are getting in one part of the healthcare system versus another part, right? Um, which is like, you know, ultimately, which makes like, you know, sometimes people, you know, like it's in the ways that people kind of vote against their own like self-interest. Like, you know, they don't want Medicare for all because they don't want to lose what they have. It's like, well, do you know where you fall on this line? Like, <laughs> because like if this line were to be like redrawn, you know, you would get access to something much better than what you have. So structural racism that also determines that line, right? Um, and then also in terms of the lack of diversity in the workforce across all spaces, because um, we know that in healthcare, we have different, like, they're all, not all healthcare workers have the same power, right? Not all healthcare workers have the same, like, social capital, right? And this is not to take away from the power that they do have, right? Especially the community health workers or our nurses. 
but that there's a certain status, for example, that's given to doctors, that's not given to others, so that you're going to have more diversity in like the less desired, in quotes, right, um, health prof like professions, and how that is also a legacy of structural racism. Yeah, your discussion about spaces um, and certain people being in and out, it reminded me of Dean Robinson's analysis of the employment-based healthcare system that we do have, which just replicates the inequities um, of the labor market. And so if you're inside and you have this sort of good job, this high paying job, then you're gonna have good health insurance. And if you don't, then you're outside of it. And it's just sort of this double whammy, right? Where, um, and that's how we end up in a place where uh, black people are twice as likely to be uninsured as whites and Latinos are actually three times as likely to be uninsured as whites. And of course, women are more likely to depend on a partner for health mm -hmm. insurance mm -hmm. um, that, that they would get through their job. Um, and so there are so many ways in which sort of, I think, structural racism appears in the health insurance system and then on top of that, the medical system. Yeah, and I mean, and just, you know, just having, so if we were, um, I love, I love how you brought it up as being a part of, like you said, like how insurance is even divided up, right? Because every system that you, that, like every microsystem within the larger healthcare system, you can analyze with a racial equity lens and see how it ultimately gets divided between the idea of who's deserving and who's not deserving, right? Which gets back to like one of the fundamental building blocks of this country, who is free and who is not free? Who is owned and who is the owner, right? So whenever you're creating something that is like designed to be not inclusive and then specifically designed to not be inclusive based on like, um, you know, ideas of race, um, you're gonna see structural racism. And, you know, and arguably like we were talking about right here in this podcast, there's not a place that you're not gonna see that. Yeah, and what, I feel like once you have that, um, that insurance structural divisions, uh, which comes from the workplace, that then gets overlaid on the communities like you were talking about. Um, I mean, we've seen in the last few decades just an epidemic of hospital closings, especially in sort of lower income communities, the communities that don't have um, lots of people with good high paying health insurance. Um, so anyone who is uninsured, um, you know, hospitals don't want them because they tend to lose money. They can't collect, you know, fees from them. Um, and even folks who are on Medicaid, uh, the program, for, you know, that the public program that some people can get on um, if they're lower income, depending on which state you're in, um, that pays much less than private health insurance. So what we see is that hospitals who are serving basically the communities who most need health care and most need public health support, um, are just going through these financial crises and often going under and closing. Um, and it's even happening right now during the coronavirus crisis when, you know, the need, I feel like, for, for healthcare capacity is, is greater than it ever has been. What you're saying is, like, so painful um, <laughs> when you think about how every trauma one that gets, like, remade as a community hospital with no other, like, trauma one or community hospital being put around it, that what that would have meant for right now. Um, you know, we, um, we um, at the university, we take our students to Cuba to study the Cuban health system. Mm. And, like, mm -hmm. and so we get asked a lot about, like, oh, so what are they, what are, what are they doing right now during the right. pandemic? And why is it that, like, you know, things are so different? 
and you know it's like where do you begin where do you talk right. to begin to be talk about like the universalness of it but the literally like like you know open your door and stumble across a doctor part of it mm -hmm. right like that this is should like you know that the idea of you know for for the idea of healthcare to be accepted as something that is not elite we have to accept the fact that the healthcare professionals are not an elite profession and then we have to like then step back and be like so then what is it it's a tool that should be made more democratic and that so many people should have access to studying it if they want to study it because we need more of it and we in fact it would be great if we had all if it was just like overflowing with it because then we would have so many opportunities for people to actually have access to it but we have seen and as you know we're, you know we were talking about like you know structural racism an example mass incarceration we have seen such a disinvestment in the things that we already had that we were critical of and such an investment in the things that we know we directly do not need because they go after and mm -hmm. undermine what are our social determinants of health so when you think about california being like at one point in its like history more recent history a leader in education right compared to other states and now to be a leader in incarceration and to like you know be like failing when it comes to education like you know indicators mm -hmm. like how are we ever going to address like these persistent issues of like expanding access to healthcare if we're not even thinking about like that workforce question mm -hmm. um, and how structural racism determines that. Yeah, and you, you raised uh, the, the example of Cuba, which is super interesting. I mean, Cuba really does not spend much on healthcare per person, but they do a much better job of distributing the, the scant resources they have equitably than we do. Um, so what do you think, I mean, if we, if we won a Medicare for all system here in the United States, let's think a uh, big picture positive. I mean, this is what we're all in this movement for. Um, so that would mean that at least we would have universal access to health insurance coverage. And uh, we're fighting to make that very comprehensive coverage as well. I mean, what impact would that have on uh, racial inequities, at least as it pertains to, to our health and our health outcomes? I think, um, you know, Stephanie, when you were bringing up the, the, the really dramatic relationship between your job and access to employment and then like your healthcare, like your, your, your healthcare story in this country, right? Like what is going to be your access and what's going to be your access to what type of quality? A Medicare for all victory would disrupt that. And so then we would think for a second, okay, like what does that mean for then um, you know, um, communities of color being able to um, redetermine and restructure their relationship to their employment? Would they be able to pick jobs that were more meaningful to them? Would they be able to leave jobs that were like toxic to them, right? Would they be able to be healthier in those jobs and therefore have more of an opportunity for um, like, you know, promotion or just like some sort of like, you know, um, you know, personal and, you know, whatever professional growth, essentially like being able to help them get one of the necessary first like, um, you know, um, like prerequisites to being a worker in society that can have power to make decisions and fate and, and shape, right? Um, the nature of work, right? Um, so I when, so when I hear about Medicare for all, and I think about its relationship to working and employment in this country, and then I think about what that 
would mean and the opportunities it would open up for the Black, Latinx, Indigenous, right, um, person of color like workforce. I think that then it becomes an opportunity to challenge um, racial capitalism in a really fundamental way of then being able to bring more to the center what the rights of the worker are, because their work is not tied to them and their families being able to get the most basic, right, um, healthcare for themselves. Um, so I think about that as like a major victory um, there. And then also all the ways that like, you know, um, Ben and Stephanie, we've been talking about medical deserts, access to quality, right? Um, it would like allow for like a significant like chipping away of the existing segregated health system that is here. Um, and already that would be like, would, you know, it, it's like white supremacy is like, got its boot on like the neck of like communities, right? And Medicare for all like releases that. Now I know we all know that it doesn't remove like the like the boot like completely, right? But it releases that tension enough so that maybe we can like push back against it even stronger. Because right now without these guarantees, and you guys did the coverage on the story with the COVID and the um like kind of the long term, right? Like, you long know, haulers. COVID, right? The long haulers yeah. and, you know, for folks who don't get that positive test, right. right, in the beginning, like what that would mean and your guests had 66 visits, right? Like just like us not talking about that and opening up space, like, so knowing like that's not gonna happen, right, is a major victory, like when we think about Medicare mm -hmm. for all. Um, because it gives our people more of a chance to breathe and breathe comfortably. That doesn't mean that the work is done, but it means that we can do that and we might actually be able to have more opportunities for self-determining the directions that we're going in other movements if we didn't have to worry about this healthcare piece. Yeah, I mean, everything that you just said, Bita, and I would just add to that, that, you know, another inequity I think that is resolved by Medicare for All is just... The ridiculous financing system we have for Medicare for All. So not only are, you know, uh, lower income, disproportionately uh, black and brown communities getting either, you know, worse access to care or no access to care, but for the care that they are getting, they're paying a lot more out of their pocket for it. Um, and you know, for me, that's, this is, Medicare for All is also about asking, like, the wealthy to start actually paying <laughs> what they should be paying for our healthcare system and relieving the burden on low-income uh, people so that they can, you know, spend more on, on their families and the things that they need. Um, and so, you know, we've talked a little bit about the things that would be resolved through a Medicare for All system, but there are so many things outside of the health insurance and even the health care system that um, impact our health and how long we live and how well we live. Um, and so I think that there are many things actually uh, that will not be resolved by Medicare for all. And, and I'm just sort of wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what kind of racial inequities will remain even after we pass a, a universal health insurance coverage system. So if we pass a universal health insurance coverage system, but we still have like, you know, community policing, I mean, hospital policing partnerships where the police are in the hospital, like that's not going to, you know, that's not going to work at all. Right. So, you know, if we're if we're if we're going to be practicing the same business of this racialized medicine and also like you know keeping people alive while they're like then eaten up and consumed and pushed towards premature death by other systems 
then we've completely failed, right? Um, while we've gotten, like we've all agreed, like, you know, a really important pillar, um, like, you know, the other ones and that need to be addressed is around, obviously, I think we would all agree, um, the issue of housing, right? So if we're adding, if we're, if we're talking about like mass incarceration and policing as systems that we also need to take apart those pillars, right? Um, then we also need to think about like people's, um, people's access to housing and quality housing. Um, and, you know, we can't, we don't mean, we can't even talk about people's access to housing and quality housing around their social support systems. Like we're so behind in being able to even like address, like, you know, getting the basics. Like we're so just trying to fight to get the basics that we can't even put so many corollaries on like what that needs to look like when we get there. So it's not just getting the housing, it's getting the quality housing, it's getting the quality housing around the schools that you would want to send your child to around like also being able to afford having your parents live there, right? Your family live there, like other social supports like live there. Um, so when we think about like these other systems, right? Um, Medicare for all doesn't obviously like address structural racism and the fact that we don't therefore have these things right in these other places and who has them less. Um, it, you know, it doesn't do that. Um, and we could just have that analysis also if we included education, um, if we included, you know, um, you know, what we call here in LA County, the Department of Child and Family Services, right? And what that does to like, you know, families. Because um, ultimately the fight for Medicare for all is to strengthen community. Like what's the, the buzzword now, you know, so that communities can thrive, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, um, but the, the word thrive, like it just, it sounds different than how we normally talk about this stuff because it's contrasted with surviving. So I think, you know, that is ultimately um, what we're talking about. Medicare for all will help us survive, but all the other important other parts will help us to mm -hmm. get to that thriving goal. Yeah. yeah, and you, you had, I, I can't wait to switch from the fighting for basic rights part to fighting for uh, improving our lives part. Yeah. Um, you, had, you had mentioned earlier about the, um, the inequities in kind of the healthcare workforce, and it feels like also another area, in addition to all those other things that uh, impact our health that you talked about, is just the, the quality of care that you get when you walk into a hospital or a doctor's office that um, people of color are treated differently um, by healthcare providers. Is that, is that right? Absolutely. I mean, some of the, um, um, an important part of the work we do is around black birthing disparities. Hmm. Um, and so drawing people's attention to the consistent and the persistent, like higher, um, you know, um, higher rates of, um, you know, preterm births and, hmm. um, and mortality both, both amongst like, um, the mother and the birthing person, as well as the baby, right? Like, in, if we're thinking about like infant mortality, and you know that persisting disparity um, is a, you know, can be directly connected to structural racism, right? And it shows itself today not only in like the day-to-day -day toxicity of experiencing, um, you know, um, you know, being a black person in society from the, you know, from historical and contemporary, and you know continually ongoing, right, racism, but then also in then when you go to the hospital, right, how that continuously shows up. Um, and so, you know, the, um, and what does that mean? You know, that's legacies of like not listening, right, um, to black women. Um, and that's also legacies of thinking that um, 
that you know that there's deception in the description of like how you feel in terms of your symptoms um right so that if you say that you're in pain you are not in pain you know legacies of like racialized thinking around like pain um and pain seeking right like that you know exists in the healthcare system um so or you know and and not and so the you know and you see a lot there's been a lot of good movement on drawing people's awareness to this um mm -hmm. and ultimately like the you know a, a important call important call to action within that is listen to black women as their patients that draws your attention to why are you not listening to begin with right mm -hmm. um and then um two um you know, don't think that you already know what's going on <laughs> um, based on like your experiences um, and your studies, because both of those are extremely racist. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. hey, you know, like that's going to that's going to completely like shape the entire um, interaction. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. As I mean, as you're talking, I was also just thinking about like um, why it's so important that we sort of approach you know the the fight against racism from both the structural level and then also the individual level right because i mean the structural racism if we can dismantle all of these hierarchies we have in our insurance system that's going to open up a whole new you know level of equity for for all of us um but that's not going to do anything about like providers who have grown up in the breathing air of racism and having biases and preconceptions about the people that walk through their doors every day about how they handle pain about their bodies about what they eat about you know um all the things that uh come together to make people of color experience racism in the doctor's office um i even had once you know a person a doctor tell me flat out that i had some condition because i was from the far east which <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I'm not from the Far East, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's just like all these weird things that, you know, uh, providers, providers think, and that, that cannot be dismantled through structural racism that has to be. They might, have, might as well have called you an Oriental, right? Yeah, I exactly. was, yeah, I mean, to the point. I've got yeah. the eyes, you know. <laughs> the, so. it, you, every, like, it's too unbelievable how many stories there are of, like, like that. It's like, and it's, and it's so pervasive and that is a product of like like the training like the training and also what you are you know what we're, what we're arguing about here in the medicare for all like the fact that like okay well if i only have 10 minutes with you i'm gonna bring in like all my knowledge and like before this like interaction and we're saying that that knowledge is like extremely suspect Right. Because there's like, you know, a lot of histories of white supremacy that have informed how you're thinking right about the community that you're actually trying to treat. Um, and that there's the reliance on that is also because of how that clinical interaction is so structured by the culture of healthcare institutions themselves. Right. Like I need to know I need to know I need I need to rely on what I already know about you before even like, you know, getting to know you because I only have so much time to tell you what you know, needs to be done. Um, and so, you know, you just, you see it in, you know, it's across many levels of it. Um, I like to say that like, while we know that implicit bias training and cultural competency won't solve anything, it'll just make it like, it, 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 will, it will definitely do more than improve experience, right? Um, it will get us a little bit farther um, in terms of just humanizing, you know, um, the clinical encounter, which is unbelievably like, 
disappointing. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to come close to wrapping up here. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, I'm just curious, um, sort of, if you have some final thoughts, especially since, you know, your work kind of focuses on this COVID outbreak now, uh, or you've been doing a lot of work around this. Um, I mean, I, I kind of feel like this pandemic has unmasked a lot of things in American society and economy, um, both in terms of structural racism and in terms of our healthcare system and our housing and like all of the ways in which they overlap. Um, I mean, what is one thing that you felt has really been kind of exposed by this pandemic? Um, and do you have some hope that there's gonna be a reckoning after we come out of this pandemic for how some of these systems have failed us? I think when the numbers, so with the, when we formed as a task force, we formed like yeah. mid-March and we were actually in Cuba um, with the students and like they pulled us back like two days before because they were oh, like, wow. like, uh, like we don't know what's oh. gonna happen, uh -huh. with, you know, borders and checkpoints That's and crazy. you know airports being closed. And so then we immediately went into, you know, Dr. Shonda Ford, who's the director of the center, um, you know, created the space for this, our task force to come into effect. And what was like so chilling for all of the members of the task force um, and also just the broader community that has been studying like health disparities and equity and racism for a while is that when the first set of numbers were going to be coming out about who was being impacted the most, you already knew who that was going to be. And then you have to fight to get them to even collect the data on who it is, mm -hmm. right? And that whole time you're like, I'm fighting to get them to, you know, collect data on race and ethnicity just so they can show the rest of the world what we already know is true, mm -hmm. right? And so that whole process right there, like that's the pandemic, right? Like, and that's just also even public health and all the work that we're doing, like so much, we spend so much of our time trying to prove the things that we already know are true. Um, and I think that right now, when we're talking about our reckoning and why that like matters for the future, I hope we've come even closer to closing the door on this chapter, that racism exists just as stronger as ever. And there is not a place that it doesn't exist. And until it is dealt with, we are all screwed, right? Like this is well like, you know, like this needs to be, I know I was like, I was <laughs> thinking to myself, like, do I keep it real? But I didn't, but you know, I uh, made the point. Always um, keep it real in the podcast. I, real. I just <laughs> got my, my six-year-old sitting over here looking mm -hmm. at me. So I decided to um, <laughs> have a good parenting moment. Um, he's got to learn early, you know. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, I already love the fact that all, his expressions are all like, what the... And then I thought I was going to make it better and say like, what the what? So now it's what the what. Um, but so then that's, that's huge. That's, that's, that's great. We're closer. Um, but what we have always known in disaster preparedness, it's like in every basic like textbook introduction plan, you know, that you know, these plans are all across the United States and every public health department, every single one of them says, if you want to have a good chance of getting out of any disaster or pandemic, people need the basic services and they need to be in good health, optimal health before you get there. And so that's the place that I'm unsure of. Um, as we move forward, if we couldn't get universal, some sort of universal health care or whatever, something better, instead of having to like fight for like almost losing this thing that we don't even fully believe in right now, right? Mm -hmm. Like if we were to have, how is it that we're even debating that in a pandemic? So that's the part that doesn't make me hopeful. 
like that we can we can come out of this and we can be aware of this um but that we still won't then like put into place the things that we desperately need um because that's you know like that's not even public health 101 you want to go into a situation that's going to be tough you need to go in your best form and racism erodes that best form so what is going to be the chance in future ones I, you know i don't know yeah, well, I agree a thousand percent that we're not going to educate our way out of this in the future. Yeah. We're going to have to organize <laughs> our way out of yeah. this in the future. Um, and it is really wonderful to be in this struggle with you. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, guys. It was so much fun.